Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who are actually under the illusion that woodworking is cool. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Hello there. It's uh, Wood Talk 138 for June 26, 2013. On today's show, we're talking about our must-have books, breaking router bits, a saw to do it all, our choice in clamps, a shop vac that sucks too hard, tool maintenance frequency, and turning a cyclone on too many times. But before we get to all... Say that again? What? Turning it on too many times? You'll see. We'll get there. Patience, Shannon, patience. Uh, let's I've got to know now. <laughs> let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Today's show is supported by ArborTech, makers of creative wood shaping tools. They're turning 25 this year, and to celebrate, they're holding a woodworking competition. The competition is simple and fun. Show yourself using an ArborTech tool to make a project. The prize package is $1,000 worth of ArborTech tools. For more information, check out their blog at blog.arbortechusa.com. And by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. Very nice. All right, so what's on the bench? I'll jump onto my bench first because uh, I want to. So, it's so sturdily made. That it is. That split-top Rubo. There's no knocking that thing down. Just don't fall down the middle. I could. I'm very thin. Um, <laughs> so last week, I told you guys about that spiral that I was carving and how I was shoehorning it into something it didn't want to be. And I sat and thought about it for a little bit. And I'm like, you know, this is not the first time someone has created a cylinder and created a spiral pattern in that cylinder. Where else have we seen stuff like this? So I was like, you know what? Classic columns would be the place where the answer to this problem lies. So, and this was almost like right after we did the show because I started thinking about it a little bit more in depth. So I did that. I looked around. I found some classic designs, looked at some spiral, and I, in fact, just typed into Google, um, spiral column. And what it typically winds up doing is the spiral does, does not go right into any sort of a square for a base. It always goes into 
uh, like a round sort of bulbous cylinder or a platform, but it's definitely round. So the, the spiral terminates. It doesn't smoothly transition. It just terminates into a round disc. And then that round disc is you know sometimes layered on multiple round discs, and then it goes into some sort of a, a square as a base. So I'm like, okay, I could take some inspiration from this and turn that into something for this candle stand. So that's pretty much what I did. I just went round instead of square, and it made a whole lot more sense to me visually, and just uh, I like it a lot better this way. <laughs> but it's like, I mean, I guess that's common sense for some woodworkers. It's like, well, when in doubt, what was done classically? And that's where your answer is. But in this case, it was just kind of a, a simple epiphany for me. <laughs> you know? I was like, oh, okay, there, there's some sense to this, uh, why they did this in the past. So, Who came up with this idea and why did they beat me to it? <laughs> Crazy Romans. Uh, that was that, uh, what, the candle thing that you posted on Facebook, I think? Yep, yep, that was it. So, Hey, I like it. Looks cool. Yeah, it's overall not too bad for, for what it is. The, the only thing that I looked at that I didn't like was, in retrospect, I should have made the base a, a larger diameter than the top. They're both the same, and the base is thicker and has a little stack of discs uh, below the spiral, but the diameter does need to be maybe a total of a half inch more, and I think that would balance the piece out a little bit better. Um, but that's something other people can easily do, and I'm not doing it again, so <laughs> it is what it is now. Well, that's when you put the little disclaimer on there, like, you know, use mine, but just add a little bit more to it yeah. for that better look. Do as I, I made say. This mistake for you. Yeah, do as I say, not as I do. So that was one quick project out the door, and then I jumped into another one. This time between guild projects is nice to, to knock out these little uh, fun little things that we actually need. So I went into the pizza peel project because oh, yes. the last time we made a pizza was a flipping disaster because I couldn't get the I wanted to cook on my my new grill, my new smoker, and I couldn't get the raw pizza off of the the thing that N- Nicole had prepped it on. <laughs> couldn't get it off, so it's wrinkling and falling all over. It was like turning into a pizza omelet. <laughs> and uh yeah, so so I was like, you know what? I got to make Ooh, me that's a good idea. A pizza omelet. Yeah, it's called a calzone. Yeah, well. <laughs> Pizza omelet just sounds better. It does. Oh. It's a good mm. breakfast. Uh, it sounds breakfast dumb, new. I want it. <laughs> and now featuring pizza omelets. Uh, so anyways, made this pizza peel out of some bubinga and figured maple scraps because uh, why not? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it, it was a lot of fun, but like a nice two-day project, slam dunk, done. Got finish on it today. Feeling good about it. So um, Nice. Yeah. So it's been quite busy, but small projects, which is nice for a change. Hey, so yeah. I just I just Googled spiral column mm-hmm. just because I was curious. There is a killer table on Google Images here with this really cool tapered spiral leg. Oh, no kidding. And like a fluted OG top. I can't even describe it. It's awesome. I just I just put it on Pinterest because I'm just I'm just that happening. That's <laughs> see, and that's that's the thing. There's so much inspiration just in Google Images alone. You know, do a few searches one day. Just don't put any bad words or well, it's funny to find some words that you didn't expect to be bad that bring back <laughs> some images you weren't anticipating. So some of it's not safe for work. Just be careful. Uh, I work in the wood industry. <laughs> there understand. you go. I understand. There's a lot of oopsies. Well, at least you always have an out when someone walks in your office and sees what's on your screen. <laughs> yep. Honestly, I was, I was Googling for wood, for hardwood, and this showed up. <laughs> oh, classic. Well, anyway, uh, Matt, well, how about you? Know, you? I was just thinking, though, going back to the whole thing with your uh, uh, spiral thingy there, you know who would have been a great resource maybe just to pick their brain would have been um, George Walker. You, know, you could have said, yes. you know, hey, George. I've got something. Maybe maybe you could should come on and, and, and do it for me. You know what he would have you know what he would have said? He would have said, Well, you know what I'd do, Mark? I would I would Google uh I would Google spiral column 
and look at the pictures. <laughs> Thank you, George. Oh, well, in that case, why didn't I think of that myself? Oh, I did. <laughs> yeah, actually, if we were really good about how we plan this show, we could actually plan this stuff out and ask these people to be on the show. But uh, hey, we're too lazy. Well, that's usually where the kickback kicks in because then it's go. like, oh, you know what? We'll remember that for the next time when we <laughs> right. repeat this episode next year. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so, Matt, how so, about you? Okay, well, the big thing for me is uh, I just posted this last night. Uh, over last week, I was wrapping up my vacation, and contrary to being like most people when you're on vacation and decide, you know what, I'm going to head into the shop and do a lot of shop things, my brain goes 100% into vacation mode and mm. nothing gets done. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm happy that I walk in the shop, to be quite honest with you. It's really irritating because then I get back to work and I'm like, God, there was all these things I wanted to do in my shop. Why didn't I do it? Got nothing done. I got nothing done, but my couch has an amazing indent on my butt. It's awesome. <laughs> so anyways, though, actually, I did go down in the shop one day and I said, you know, I, I need to get down here. I need to do something because it's killing me. And so I redid the wall where I normally have pretty much nothing on there. It's my shelf where I have all my hand plates. Anybody that's seen the video, it's just kind of a blank cinder wall there, uh, cinder block wall. And so I had some old plywood that was just sitting around doing nothing. I didn't want to turn it into a project because it was a really crappy uh, veneer on there so it's the stuff that was going to peel off mm-hmm. and I said what would be perfect for something like that I know I'll use that to kind of create a pseudo tool wall Nice. and it's not really so much pseudo as it is a tool wall I and say, so I have an extra a pseudo tool wall <laughs> a pseudo tool wall is one that you hand paint them on to make it look like you have more tools than you actually have I didn't do that though it turns out I have a lot of hand tools or a lot of tools that I normally end up spending a lot of time going where did I put that screwdriver where's that one chisel where's that one thing that i would use but i don't know what the name of it is but i can't find it so the neat thing about this is everything that's on my wall right now was on that crappy pegboard that i had for the longest time Mm -hmm. and i've always i'm at the point now where i want to get rid of the pegboard because i don't see the benefit of it i think it's ugly and i have finally been converted away from it so i started moving everything over onto this new tool wall and as I had mentioned, like even on Facebook today, I've got a lot of tools to the point where I'm thinking I have more that I haven't even put on the wall yet or I don't think I'll have room on the wall. I might need to do a little culling of the tools, maybe mm-hmm. sell some off or something and, uh, uh, and, and really kind of try to narrow it down to the tools that I really, really want to use and I want to have around. So it was, it was kind of neat seeing everything out there. And then now there's that part of me that I know when I'm actually at the bench – I'm going to grab the right tool versus the one that I can find that maybe it's almost kind of what I need, but not quite what I need, but it's going to do because I can't find the one that I really need. <laughs> so pretty excited. But the other really geeky thing was the uh, – uh, Shannon, you pointed this out. I, I made like the little inserts for my hand saws like on the inside, so they're, they're resting on that. And I wanted to make it look really pretty, so I broke out some black dye to pretend like it was something more exotic. <laughs> it's, and it's it worked. It worked, I'll tell you. That first yeah. look, I was like, I know he had some ebony for those rings. Don't tell you me. Don't no. <laughs> yeah. Ebony tool can... organizers. Why not? <laughs> exactly. Whatever, Studley. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, the neat thing about it was that this was – I haven't used dye in a long time. In fact, I can't even remember the last time I used a dye. And so it was kind of fun breaking that out. And Grace, this was – my finally expanding what I normally do. And so I came up and the main thing was when I was doing it, I actually had a cup of coffee next to my black dye. <laughs> I did have the moment where I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Did I just I put did. that in my coffee? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I don't remember putting coffee in the mason jar. So this must be the dye. <laughs> I know I like my coffee black, but this is crazy. Exactly. Nice. And then I went so far as to when I was filtering the dye, um, I used a coffee filter. So that made it even more confusing. So, but anyway, so... <laughs> 
the end result is up on the wall, and I, I really kind of enjoying it nice. for once. There's nothing like good old shop organization. Yeah, and the, like where I have the the little chisel holders and all that stuff, it's again just pure scrap wood that I just grabbed it and said, I just need this for right now. Maybe I can come back and and purdy this up at some point. Mm-hmm. But for right now, it's totally utilitarian. And it works, so I'm really, done. really happy with it. Very nice. Well, good yeah, deal. So that was that was me. Now, Shannon, we we talked a little bit before we we actually started record, recording a little bit about your lathe. I was giving you some critiques, which I don't know if you've taken those very well. But <laughs> I see that you have something lathes. on here on the bench about your lathe stuff again. Do you want to? You maybe want to share that with the rest of us? Yeah the 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 sickness. We'll just call it that. The sickness that I'm in right now of foot powered lathes. I have. Finally gotten all of the hardware that I need together and finalized a design for the flywheel lathe and actually have a SketchUp drawing and I'm kind of excited to do this. And uh, I just started milling some of the lumber and it's going to happen. Looking forward to it. Cool. Sweet. And I, let's see, should be this time next week, there will be a new 20-inch planer on its way to me. hey Oh my so goodness! Speaking speaking of spiral columns, I I did a little bit of digging into the whole straight knife, you know, spiral whatever individual cutter had, and the immediate thought is, well, of course I'm going to get the spiral because that seems to be the way to go. Everybody's but I actually it. I took a step back and I was like, do I really need this? Mm-hmm. You know, as someone who's just using a planer like really quickly and doing all the finished work, and I still pretty much surface one face using hand planes. Yeah. And a lot of times I'll do the other face. Depending on the size of the board, I just do the whole thing with hand planes. But if I'm in a big hurry or if it's a big board or I'm feeling especially lazy, you know, the, okay, so a lot, I guess. <laughs> the thickness planer comes out. And I was just like, I know that it leaves a cleaner cut and it's supposedly quieter and all this other stuff. And you don't have to replace it all that much. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, this is probably overkill for me. But at the same time, if I'm going to go and buy one, you know, and then I started looking at prices, and I was like, "Geez." Just about <laughs> to ask you, what was your price difference between them? Uh, it's like a six hundred dollar price difference. Ah, see, so now you got to really think about that. <laughs> yeah, but I also said this is going to be the last time I do this. Yep. So what the hell? And I, I I bit off on it. Then it came down to the well, what's really the difference between the stock? the stock spiral head and the Shelix spiral head. I was just like, oh God, <laughs> <laughs> just going down that rabbit hole. And I just literally, this is a utilitarian tool for me. So anyway, I'm a, uh, I, 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 the reason it's a week from today is I promised the, the wife that I would wait until a certain other check cleared before I wrote that check. It's not exactly a small one. It's a big bite. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, could congratulations. Be a, a lot bigger. It could be a lot bigger. Grizzly is still pretty amazing when it comes to their prices. Now, I want to so. see a, a, a powered planer Grizzly uh, setup video from the Renaissance Woodworker. Oh, sure. Absolutely. That'd be great. I actually think it would be, um, it would be kind of interesting because I don't think there's much to do with this. I mean, <laughs> there shouldn't be. <laughs> I mean, it comes in this enormous crate that weighs 900 pounds and. You know, I, I don't think there's a whole lot to it. But the Matt, I think you did something, whether it was Get Woodworking Week or just about, um, what was it, uh, using using a planer instead of, instead of a joiner, something like that. Hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah. My thought was to kind of tackle the same thing. And, you know, yes, I'm a, I'm a serious hand tool nut, but let's be real. You know, <laughs> let's let's be real about this. There is a power tool in my shop, and I think it's cool to be able to know how to do it entirely by hand. But who are you trying to prove after a while? You know, yeah, I, mean, 
I think that was with the, uh, the, the bedside tables. But I was thinking, you don't mind me interrupting here, I had, I had two thoughts on this. Number one, I would like to see a project built from the crate that it comes in. <laughs> um, probably, you know, I think you should use your hand tools there. Or uh, number two, uh, you should do a side-by-side split screen of hand planing and then running it through the planer, the thickness planer. Do it in real time. <laughs> I think that would really that would be you know, awesome. That would be hilarious. And, yeah, and you, that way you, can, you can show and say, look, even the <laughs> smartest hand shop woodworkers know their limits. I could just see like the power tool side, like, and I'm there, I've got a cup of coffee, you know, I've already finished the board. I'm like watching TV, you know, <laughs> you leave the room, turn the light off. So that one side is just black and you're still like working on it. <laughs> it's awesome. That's classic right there. <laughs> That's happening. That is happening. Good stuff. Well, congratulations, Shannon. Let us yeah, know how definitely. it goes. Thanks. I feel like it's my first big boy tool. You know, <laughs> it sounds well. It sounds like a good one. It's a fifteen inch. You said twenty. Twenty. Hey, that's Ooh, big. It's a beast. It's a beast. And that's and frankly, big. I would have had I not had I not. I can't speak. If I didn't work where I work now, mm-hmm. um, fifteen inch would be like, oh my god, that's so huge. But I actually do commonly run across stuff that's 18 and 19 inches i brought home a scrap the other day that was 19 inches wide right. so it's like so you're hey, need you that know, 20. i can i can see myself running into this and that's frankly where it really comes in handy um you know if a board is six inches wide sometimes it's just as easy for me to pull out you know a hand plane although this new planer it's it's it does have a built-in mobile base to it but it's more of a fixed tool yeah. which is why i say it's my first big boy tool because i've never had a, an actual static tool mm-hmm. you know my table saw was a contractor saw on a mobile base everything has been a benchtop version or contractor version that you move into place this one i still will have to move into place because the my shop is small but i mean the tables don't fold up or anything um my current dewalt like sits on the floor so i'd have to pick up all 95 pounds and put it on the bench top every time i used it so right. i was much more prone to just say eh, six inches and just flatten it the whole thing by hand and you know just move on um this one it'll be interesting to see how lazy i truly am <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be an enabler for me so cool that's I'm looking forward to it. That might be another good video is you uh, trying to lift it versus the other one. And we'll see the comparison. And then we'll see you being rushed to the emergency room with that hernia. 95 pounds versus 932 pounds. Ready, go. That's a big difference. All right, moving on to Around the Web. We've got a nice set of links. In fact, all these were sent in by uh, folks from the community. So thank you, everybody, for those. Matt, you want to get us started? Absolutely. Let's see. First, we have here. This one came in from Stan. And, you know, Everybody keeps talking about our good old friend Norm and uh, how everybody misses him mm-hmm. and they wish they were back or they wish he was back. I'm sure they wish they were back also, but they they really wish Norm was back. And apparently Norm was talking at the recent 2013 festival event. So this is a YouTube video of Norm sharing his experience talking about woodworking apparently and apparently how festival has helped to make it a lot better. I ended up watching I think the first three or four minutes, but it's like a 45 – 50 minute long video. Yeah, he put some time in that. Yeah, so it definitely it was pretty. I, I saw a little thing about him talking about how he was, you know, his first job was at his dad's work uh, site and all this good stuff. So he really kind of gets in there. So for those of you who are festival freaks and also norm freaks, this is a great combination for you. <laughs> there you go. You know, I think in keeping with the current Hollywood craze, they should do a new Yankee workshop prequel. 
Ooh. There you go. It's, isn't that called This Old House? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> wow. PBS was really ahead of the time. They are. See, that's where they got the idea from. Before no one even knew what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, Ross sent in a very cool link with a, uh, I don't know who put the words in here, but it says, crazy example of Japanese cabinet making. Uh, he says, I kid you not, a karate chop is involved, and watch the effect of air pressure in the first segment. So this is a good example of Japanese woodworking. There are three videos that are posted on this site. They're all YouTube videos, but it's it's one of those things. You just sit there, you get lost in it. Uh, there's there's quite a bit there, but it's it's woodworking on the floor. It's exactly what you would expect to see with this type of woodworking, and using your feet to hold the workpiece down. And uh, one thing I noticed, which scares me a little bit, he likes the plane toward the nuts. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you I, I watched this at night and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and I don't care how good you are and how long you've been doing this, but just in general, you don't plane toward the nuts. <laughs> I think basically what happens is you mess up once and you never do it again. <laughs> yeah. Well, clearly he's that good because he's never messed up, but uh, I, I plane away from the boys. Um, you know, I, I was. I, I don't know if I was more impressed with that, the fact that he didn't hit them, or his members only jacket. Uh, that was pretty <laughs> spiffy. Uh, but seriously, though, you've got to watch this. This is one of those videos, kind of like when we watched that old video of that uh, the guy that worked at the the mill, and we were just like, "This, this is like a real oh, man. Yeah. Uh, this is a real woodworker." I mean, the, yes. the way this guy approaches things with the. Um, just the level of experience that he exhibits as he's flattening a board effortlessly and just makes something amazing from it um, really, really good and kind of kind of brings you back to what this is really all about. Uh, very cool stuff. I, I really enjoyed it. So we'll, we'll put the link there for you to watch that one. I think right. that's what I'll do in my split-screen video. Once the planer Shannon is done, I'll just flip to this video. There you go. Give you guys something really cool to watch <laughs> while, while, while hand-plane Shannon is still sweating. Right. <laughs> You know, and now for something completely different. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Marilyn sent in a link to a robot bartender. Robot. And uh, robot I think beep. I think that's that's very very cool. But she actually points out that the table that the drinks are served on is pretty hot. Yeah. So scroll down to the bottom of that article, and there's a lot of uh, marquetry inlay type stuff on there. Yeah, it's very cool. It's just it's a dimmy loon table that has like the. Um, sunburst radiating fan i mean the the fact mm. that they used uh i think it's sapili it looks like sapili quarter sawn ribbon striped sapili just coming out in a sunburst it's really beautiful Gorgeous. yeah and it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice contrast between the like little 1980s armatron robot arm right. and and the dimmy loon table it's awesome <laughs> this, this video would have been the perfect track track uh, hat trick holy crap man can you speak a little bit the perfect hat trick as if you had the robot then you could have had the uh the table and then if they would have shown how the robot actually makes the drinks that would have been the perfect track hat trick nice. almost a track hit again okay. all right so th- this next one is from damon who sent this in it's a a link to a no nonsense board foot calculator mm-hmm. it's just a board foot calculator i know there's a ton out there but they're ugly and boring you can do things tweak waste amount and get a price to check it out on your mobile device or resize your browser too that last part was from damon so if you're looking for a no nonsense board foot calculator check it out it does I would look like good. a nonsense board foot calculator seriously That'd be what what I would just be more nonsense while I'm calculating board it, it just says, so, how you doing? You know, while you're yeah, here, tell me, tell me, how's your mother? Conversational board foot calculator. Did we give the link to that? I didn't hear. Uh, it, it's uh, bfcalc.com. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Very nice. Um, thanks for that, Damon. 
Okay, last one we have here is from Ken. He sent a link to an article that's more about, uh, he says it's more about design. While it's not strictly woodworking related, I wanted to hear your thoughts about this article regarding the relationship of wood and technology. And I should have read the article then, huh? Yeah, I did, I did actually read it. Uh, it's, uh, the title of the article is why, oh, right. aren't, okay. why Aren't Our Gadgets Still Covered in Wood? And it talks about how, like in the 50s and, and using um, um, the Mad Men sort of craze of, uh, I guess, you know, in that time frame, just about every piece of electronics was covered in some sort of wood. And it's asking the question, why don't we do that anymore? And what's, what's the logic behind it? Is it, uh, is it money? Is it just fear of, of using material that actually has something else going on? It's not, it's not like a static material. This stuff is going to move. It's unpredictable. Uh, so it really does go into depth. I don't know how much we're going to get into talking about this, but it is an interesting article and does raise some some interesting questions because we make assumptions about why we wouldn't want to use wood for stuff like this. And it kind of puts up an argument against that logic that if we really wanted to, there's no reason why we couldn't be using wood for these things. Right. Um, one of my favorite lines from this thing is, uh, where did I find it? It said something about, you know, one of the reasons is that woodworkers are just weird people. <laughs> Something that like pretty that. much sums it up if you ask me that's exactly it yeah wood people it says so wood people are weird uh whoever this person is that was being interviewed <laughs> so we we are weird I will oh that's pretty that. good <laughs> yeah so good article it's good for a read check it out if you got opinions on it give us some kickback next week uh all right moving on into the poll of the week we asked actually tom asked have you ever done a two by four challenge and uh this is one of those things that crops up once in a while. It's very common. I, I don't know if it was common before the internet woodworking craze or if this is just <laughs> something that came out of that. But the idea is you take a single board, single two by four construction lumber and do something great with it. And usually there's no major limitations. You just take this board and, and make something. And then uh, whoever has the coolest thing that you've made wins the challenge. Nice. Uh, my, my idea of a two by four challenge is Matt, pick up that two by four Get that up onto the 13th floor. You can't use the elevator because it's too too big for it. <laughs> right. Oh. Um, so real quick, uh, 49% said that they haven't, but they wish that they could. 36% said, I haven't ever considered doing one. Uh, 10%, almost 11% said, I haven't, and I don't ever want to. <laughs> <laughs> only 3%. Only, what? That's crazy. Uh, only 3% said, I have, and I loved it. And 0.5% said, I did, but it was a real drag. So... Yeah, interesting. Fifty percent want to, so this is you know. Should I wonder if we should do one? Someone suggested that the three of us should should do one, where we each take a two by four and do something with it. <laughs> I seem to remember this was a while ago. One of these popped up, and somebody tried to get really creative and <clears throat> do steam bending, and uh, they like sliced it up into little, almost like they were doing strip um, laminate um, bending, right? <clears throat> strip laminates, but instead they steam bent them. And he's just like, the moral of the story is do not try to steam bend two by fours. It's like, it's like imagine taking a paper towel and wetting it. He said it was the exact same consistency. He'd like cut it down to an eighth inch wide and steam bent it and then had to like scrape the inside of the steam pipe out because the stuff just disintegrated. Nice. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. <laughs> All right. Moving into kickback. This is where you get to say some stuff at us and, and tell us where we're wrong or someone else is wrong or whatever. Uh, let's see. The first one we have here is from Dane. He says, in response to episode 133, titled Pork Roll on a Bandsaw, uh, we discussed storing plane blades under pressure. You guys answer, he says, you guys answered that uh, you don't loosen the blades because it doesn't matter. 
correct, but you didn't give the real reason why. Now, he gave us a very long email, <laughs> and thank you for that, Dane. I had to take a break. I'm going to do everybody a favor and boil it down to this, is that metal has elastic characteristics, and there's different types of deformation, and some are reversible, some are not. And the reason why you can keep these blades under pressure is because the particular type of deformation that it undergoes is reversible. So you're not actually changing anything in the, the material. When you release the pressure, it snaps back to the way it was before. Um, so that's the Cliff Notes version of what Dane <laughs> I, wrote I to have us. to give kudos to Dane because at the end of his his dissertation, he gave a total Mr. Wizard-like example. Oh, He's yeah, like, yeah. Go get a paperclip. <laughs> yeah. And he like walked us through this thing with a paperclip, and all I could think of was Mr. Wizard. It was totally. Just, well done. Yeah, thank kudos. you for that, Dane. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Let's see. Dave says during uh, Wook, Wook Talk, that would be says. my typo. It says, Wook Talk, 136. <laughs> that's, not, that's not Dave's typo. That's me. <laughs> uh, apparently, talk. oh, uh, Shannon mentioned a scary, the scary circular saw-based table saw at Hearn Hardwood, um, Lee Nielsen event. That must have been Mr. Jeffrey's third world machine shop. And he goes on to say that we should give a shout out to a fellow professional woodworker and woodworking instructor, Jeffrey Lohr. Uh, he and his wife, Linda, founded the Moringa community in 2008. And... Uh, as I understand it, it's basically it reminds me a little bit of the Greenwood Foundation that uh, Brian Box got involved with, where they mm-hmm. go into these third world communities and teach these people how to make things that yeah. they can then sell and for the good of their their village. So absolutely, absolutely. big shout out. We're going to have links in the show notes to not only the Moringa community that they uh, founded, but also uh, Jeff Lores. Uh, website. Yeah, and I do want to mention that we did actually mention this way back in episode 47. Um, oh, yeah, it does say that, doesn't it? Yeah, that was something that I, I think... I don't it was know in Shannon, italics. I thought I wasn't supposed to read that. <laughs> I don't know if Shannon was on the show yet or not back then, but... Um, I don't think so. Yeah, that was early on. But yeah, when this, I guess when it first became well-known to, to other people, we decided to talk about it a little bit. So uh, right. go back and listen to that episode 47. I don't know how people completely miss that or don't remember that. I mean, it was one of the most most memorable episodes between you and I. I was, Aren't they always? Yeah, I, mean, I remember every single one like it was yesterday. Exactly. That's why occasionally <laughs> I have arguments in my head with you. Right. <laughs> what were we arguing about last time? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Let's hug. Uh, I'll remember it on the next episode. There you go. All right, so hey, this next one, you know, in episode uh, number 137, where we discussed different areas that we can save money. And by the way, episode number 137 was last week yes. as we're recording this in case people are not playing the game at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a few different people send in some great ideas. So we're just going to kind of condense this down once again. The first one was Tony, and he said, you know, try to find use, used cabinets and buy sandpaper in bulk. Uh, that's, that's a great one. I know he had mentioned, uh, was, I believe, I think it's cling spore. They've got like, uh, off cuts mm-hmm. and et cetera. So definitely a really good way to save some money in there and the used cabinets. Oh my gosh. My grandfather had a ton of those in his, uh, his barn. In fact, I think his barn was one giant cabinet to be quite honest with you. <laughs> uh, Tom said, uh, Baltic birch ply. Don't scrimp. I bought some shop grade material once by mistake. It sort of can work, but yuck. Save on lumber. I get the impression that cost and availability of domestic lumber vary significantly by region. So know what is good value and plentiful in your area. Hmm. Avoid jigs, fixtures, gizmos that solve a non-problem or that provide a benefit which is readily shop made or even accomplished with a bit of skill. Things like bench cookies, dovetail jigs, tapering jigs, self-clamping, straight edges. I believe those are the ones he's saying are like, eh, they're nice to have but save the money. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see. The last person that, that we have on here is from Mike. And Mike says, if you get creative with how to use the tools you already have, you may be surprised with what they can do. A few quality tools, a creative mind, and a lot of attention to detail will generate some amazing results. And if you just want to practice with wood, uh, use pallets. You do not need to make sure that you get all the nails out with those. You do so, need, not do not. You do, you do need to make yes. sure that you get all the it's, it's generally <laughs> a good I, idea. <laughs> I, I say don't and just, you know, buy you see those blades. nails? Just ignore those. They're nothing. They'll be, it'll, it'll be, be a fun. quick way to remind you the next time. Just send it, send it through Shannon's planer. <laughs> it's new. Nice. It'll be there's fun. Like, there's like 99 <laughs> of those things. They're replaceable. Just put a new one in. It's all good. You just flip them around. Um, all right. right. Moving into our voicemail. We actually got three of them today. Uh, first one is from Alan, who has a question about clamps. Hey, guys. This is Alan. Could you talk about clamps? I started out buying pony pipe clamps because they're instantly adjustable. Don't need a long pipe? Great. Go for a 12-inch pipe, and you're good to go. Oops, bigger project, and you need a 36-inch long clamp. No problem. Run back to the big box store and grab you a long pipe, and all of a sudden, your clamps are nice and long. But I've been looking at the F-bodies lately, and although they're quite a bit more expensive than my infinitely adjustable pony clamps, they look like there's some advantages to using those. Uh, what do you guys use, and why do you choose uh, your particular clamps? Thanks. Love the show. Bye. I, uh, I'll go first. The ones I tend to go to the most are the expensive ones, of course, because I'm Mark <laughs> Spagnolo, and that's what I do. Um, but I like the parallel clamps. I, I like the really wide jaw on them, and I find for panel glue-ups, they've, they've got a nice reach on them. They're just easy. They stand up real nice, so it's very easy to get a panel going on the workbench for glue-ups. And overall, that's my primary clamp. My second clamp that I will go to, and this goes to what he was saying, is an F-style clamp. I find that those just are incredibly powerful for pinpoint pressure when you need it. Uh, that that's a little bit harder to get from like a pipe clamp um, and really even from, uh, you know, the parallel clamps. They just aren't, I don't think I can generate as much pressure. I mean, that's not scientifically based, but it feels like I can get more <laughs> pressure from a big old Bessie F-style clamp. Um, so those are the ones that I use primarily, but uh, there is nothing wrong with using pipe clamps. Um, I know a lot of people who that is their primary clamp and they do quite well with them. Um, so I'm curious what you guys typically rely on. The only thing I would say with pipe clamps is that Pony makes them both in half inch and three quarter. Mm-hmm. Don't go the half inch. Um, I made that mistake early on, and that pipe flexes way too much. Mm, good point. Uh, half inch is just way too small. Three quarter, I didn't have any flex problems after that, but at that point, I ended up with like eight half inch <laughs> clamps, and it was just like, what am I going to do with these now? I guess, <laughs> I mean, they work for really, really short stuff, but frankly, uh, an F clamp was easier when I went down to shorter length. There you go. Right. Yeah, and for me, uh, F clamp and then the occasional pistol grip is what I usually go to. But w- most of my stuff oh, yeah. is the F clamp. I really, really like, like you said, kind of that pinpoint pressure. Yeah. Um, I, I, I really like that. But the the pistol grip now those will really, really vary depending on the manufacturer. There are some really good ones out there, and then there are some others that I swear, as soon as I pull that trigger and I let go, it just springs right open again. <laughs> Right. So, like, all the pressure just disappears. But for my shop, if anybody that's been singing in there, I do have pipe clamps, but I mainly go with the F-style. You know, I always forget about those pistol grip ones, and it's funny because I use them all the time. <laughs> you know, it's it's that third-hand thing. You yeah. know, you can just squeeze it, and it comes together. And especially if you do smaller, like, sub-assemblies, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's not 
and frankly, I think if the joint is well made, you shouldn't have to like lay into it to get it to close up. True, exactly. Yeah. Um, yes. Although I've been known to do that a couple times. Um, <laughs> I, I it's, it's funny because I just have the the Home Depot special, the the blue Irwin ones, and mm-hmm. no, nah, I mean they don't. You, you, I probably couldn't like hurt myself trying to squeeze it. It doesn't put that much pressure, but they they do a great job for those smaller things. You know, with the with the smaller <laughs> projects I've been working on lately, I remembered just how useful spring clamps can be. Okay, yes. Oh, yeah. So I've got a couple of these heavy duty spring clamps that I'm like, I was sitting there going, oh, I know if I put any other kind of clamp on this, these two pieces are going to slide around from one another. Um, I wish I had something that would make this easy, and I don't want to shoot like a brad nail through it. And I'm like, oh, my spring clamps, those are perfect. The way they just grip it on both sides. And if you get a really decent one, they actually can apply quite a bit of pressure. Um, you know, so. my spring clamps have come up missing because my wife likes to use them for holding up her backdrops whenever <laughs> she's taking photos. So there's been times that she'll be in the middle of a photo shoot. I'm like, that's my damn spring clamp. Give me that. <laughs> right. All right. Next uh, voicemail we have here is from George, whose shop vac is, well, he's concerned that his shop vac might suck too hard. Ooh. Matt and Shannon, this is George. From- okay. I'm going to assume that he started talking before Skype, like, started recording it. And because he left my name out, I, I, I can't believe he would do that intentionally. Oh, I, I can. There's a certain uh, segment of this uh, population that would listen to this show that just like Shannon and I. That, See, I'm always the one in the middle. You're you either like right. me or, or you, you, you kind of like me. I think I think you're right. All right, let's do this again. Matt and Shannon, this is George from Concord, North Carolina. Jerk. Just a quick question in about a minute or less. I'm soon to be a Festool newbie. I just bought an ETS 125 Sanders through the Festool reconditioning sale from a local dealer. While I was talking to the store owner about the purchase, he said that I may want to consider getting the Festool dust extractor as well. I think this is a great idea, but it's just not in the budget right now. I mentioned that I may rig up my shop vac for dust extraction in the meantime. The owner told me an interesting story that with, with his first Festool sander, he did the same thing and quickly realized that the shop vac was providing too much suction. Once while he was sanding a small panel, he lifted up the sander and the panel was actually stuck to the sanding pad. He also mm-hmm. noticed many swirl marks because the suction was too powerful. He told me that other people have found a way to work around this actually by poking holes in their vacuum lines this sounds like a disaster to me. I have a basic 14-gallon shop pack, ran vacuum. I will likely buy the best tool extractor within about a year or so, but what are your thoughts for the meantime? Have you ever heard of anyone actually having this sort of trouble? Is there a straightforward short-term workaround if I run into this problem? The owner suggested I should just stick with the dust collection bag that comes with the unit, but I would really, pref- I would really prefer power dust removal. I'm probably going to try it with my shop pack anyway, just um, when the sander arrives next week, but... In in the meantime, what are the options? And uh, if I if I do try it and run into trouble, I'll kick that back to you for the next show. Thanks in advance. Keep up the great work, guys. See ya. Okay, I'd answer this, but he wasn't talking to me. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I uh, can't say that I've ever had a vacuum suck too hard. That seems a little. I mean, I guess I can understand if it's actually pulling it down onto the work, then you're not letting the sandpaper do its job. Right, you know, you're, it's like if you push down too hard on a sander. Yeah, but it is something that can happen, and it was something that I had demonstrated for me when I was at a festival event, actually. And they were because I asked that that question: Why the heck is there speed control on your right. vacs? And uh, they said, well, that actually can happen sometimes in certain situations, certain woods. Maybe you're at a really high grip and the surface is nice and smooth. And what winds up happening is if the suction is too good, you you literally can lift up the panel 
and lift the sander in the air and the panel stays attached. So what happens is it does almost um, artificially create extra pressure between the pad and the wood, and that will actually lead to extra swirl marks um, in certain situations. Now, it doesn't happen all the time. It's not a guarantee that it's going to happen, but it is possible, and that is one of the reasons why that dial exists. So you can dial it back down just to the point where you lift up on the sander and the piece starts to come with it but then drops off. Um, if it comes out fully with, with the sander, you know you've got a little bit too much suction there. So the problem is, though, I don't want to see this guy poking holes in his shop vac hose. <laughs> you know? the same thing. That reminds me of some certain uh, um, uh, gold diggers with certain football players doing something else, poking holes in something else. <laughs> that's, but that's just that's, terrible. That's right not there. for a family show. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know what he can do temporarily. I mean, the good thing is it sounds like he's not that far out from adding a CT vac, um, right. I wouldn't want to add to the expense of, of, you know, watching him ruin his shop vac hose only to have to replace that one later once he gets the CT vac. Um, <laughs> right. So it is, there is a possibility it could happen. I say give it a shot. It's not a guarantee that it will be a problem, but you might, you might just want to see what happens. You know, and I think if, if it ends up does, it sucks too hard, then, you know, put a kink in the hose. <laughs> you know, take a rubber band and like do a, a U-bin in the hose and just loop it around there. And I mean, that'll cut down the, the, the flow. Yeah. You know, I wonder also, you know how on a vacuum, like a home, home vacs tend to have a little ring near the top, or at least the vacuum I had, uh, had one where you could rotate it out of the way and there's a hole yep. in the, an actual hose itself. Um, that, and it's usually the metal part of the hose, but I wonder if he can do something like that at the connection point where it meets the sander. Maybe he can make or cobble together a little fitting that goes on there that has a small window in it, or then put holes in that instead of putting holes in in the hose. That might be an option for him. Yeah, like a little extension or something. Mm-hmm. He could construct an elaborate downdraft table that exactly mimics the suction up and suction down to counteract the whole thing. Oh, we're getting a little elaborate there. <laughs> what, how about this idea? I was just thinking, I'm like, you know, with, with shop vacs, the, you can get the, what, one and a quarter inch hose or you can get the two inch hose or whatever it is. Yeah. Maybe, and this is going to be like one of those, you're going to have to figure out a way to kind of wrestle at this a little bit. Go with the hose that's just a little bit larger. So as most times you're trying to connect the one and a quarter into the back of that sander. Maybe go with the two inch and you'll have to kind of hold the hose in place, but it's going to allow a little bit of a... Uh, the suction's not going to be as great because it's not like holding onto it very tight. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like there'll be a little bit of a gap there. So you'll still get suction. You're just not going to get like extreme suction. Yeah. But again, it's also going to be a balancing act of holding the hose while holding the sander while doing the sanding. That sounds like a pain in the batootie. Right. But it beats the heck out of having swirl marks and then having to come back and do it again. That's true. All right. Got another voicemail here from Mike from L.A. Yeah. Just listening to you make that laugh was great. Um, <laughs> it was like half half there. I, half I was about there. to say something, and then I'm like, no, I better not. <laughs> All right, let's go. Hello, gentlemen. This is Mike from L.A. calling. Um, two-part question this week. Uh, the first question is, I guess for uh, um, Matt and Mark, um, in terms of machine shop maintenance, um, shop tools. How how often are you guys doing like a routine maintenance on all the machines in your shop, like um, table saw, band saw, joiner planer, that kind of thing? Um, <laughs> the other question I have is uh, in re- it's in regards to the uh, Clearview Cyclone. Um, 
I'm installing this right now, and when I use the table saw normally with my dust collector, I just I sneak up on cuts and, you know, turning the table saw off and on maybe, I don't know, 10 to 15 times an hour. And I heard that, uh, <laughs> you know, cold starting the uh, cyclone um, more than like five times an hour wasn't good because of the draw. Um, so how are you guys doing, um, you know, using that dust collector? Should I be turning it on every time I turn on my saw, even though it's a lot, or should I be um, turning it on every 20 minutes? Um, kind of clueless about that one. So sorry for the long-winded voicemail, guys. Thank you. Take it easy. All right. Mike from L.A., thanks for that. He sounds like he's from L.A. He does. He's a little laid back there. There's Very nothing wrong with that. Very California. Yeah. All right. So I would say, okay, two-part question. So uh, tool maintenance. For me, obviously Matt doesn't maintain his tools. <laughs> like tool maintenance, what exactly is that? How would you define maintenance? Is that just simply <laughs> brushing the sawdust off the top, or are you talking about actually removing the sawdust from locations like when I try to remove lint from my belly button? Yeah. Uh, we, I mean, are we getting in-depth there? <laughs> um, for me, I try to do at least some level of maintenance. Uh, you know, if we're just talking about cleanup, that's that's weekly. We're right. talking about waxing tables. That's usually about once a month. If we're talking about checking it for calibration, now that's something that I, you know, I, I freely admit that I don't do that on a routine basis. I kind of go, you know, I wait for a symptom to tell me that there's a problem, right. you know, because otherwise you sit there, you could spend all day just chasing down, you know, this is where you get into that loop of uh, going after a thousandth of an inch. Uh, in your setup. So honestly, if I don't notice a problem, then it's not a problem. So, um, right. so when it comes to calibration, it's only as needed. Um, and that's really the extent of, of my maintenance. And of course, you're always looking at things like belts, uh, make sure that nothing is, is too loose if they're, but honestly, that's something that I might only do maybe every six months that I'll kind of give the, I'll kick the tires a little bit, so to speak. Um, but that's about it for me. And mine pretty much mirrors exactly, except for, uh, no, it is pretty much. I, I Most of my stuff is as needed. If you hear that sound, if you notice something's actually happening or occurring while you're working on a project, then I'm more likely to say, all right, let's stop working on this and figure out what's going on before I go any further and make it any worse than it is. But other than you know wiping off sawdust uh, because I don't want it to be corroding on top of the, the, the surface or any of that other stuff, I really don't get too far in depth because there's that part of me that – I know me, I'll start working on something and going, hmm, this mm. would be a perfect time to tweak this right. when it doesn't need to be tweaked. So it's kind of a, if it's not broken, don't fix it, is right. the attitude I'm going into now, which unfortunately I wish I had that attitude a few <laughs> tools ago. <laughs> right. And uh, Shannon will give you his thoughts on this in about a year. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. And uh, his second part of his question was about turning on a cyclo. Now I have the clear view that he's talking about, and I read the same thing he did. That says that you really shouldn't be turning that bad boy on more than a couple times per hour. Here's the thing. Reality kind of dictates that I do things a little differently than that. There are just times where I do need to turn it on, usually not five times in an hour. Um, so, so what I do is I try to be strategic about my operations. So if I'm doing something that requires the dust collection to be on, I stop and think, do I have anything else coming up, like maybe two steps down the line where I'm going to need this on again? If that's the case, then I just leave it on. And I've got ear protection on anyway, so it's not, you know, the only thing that sucks is I can't hear the music that's on in the shop. 
Um, But I will leave it on and try to consolidate my tasks so that I don't have to uh, keep turning it on and off. But if I have, let's say I just turned it off and I go to the workbench and I realize I forgot to do something and I go, oh crap, I need to get this done. I'm not going to wait an hour. I'm turning it on and I'm getting back to work. So um, that may do damage. That may not be great. So that take that with a grain of salt. Um, but that's what I need to do to get my day's worth of work done. Um, so yeah, that's where I stand with that. Yeah. And since I don't have a cyclone, that, I would, that was part of it as I was listening to this. I was thinking that's an issue that you actually run into. I mean, I feel guilty though about turning my... Uh, dust collector on and off because I will do that. I'll make a cut and then I'll do a quick setup like, oh, I forgot to grab this one or I just need to move it over an inch. I don't know why I turn it off and then I'll turn it back on. Right. My biggest concern then is that somehow I'm just going to end up blowing out the bag or something. That's about it. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move into our emails. Let's see. I got the first one here from Andrew. He says, I broke my quarter inch spiral router bit, cutting mortises in hard maple. And maple is hard. Just ask Shannon. Yes, it is. Uh, Even it the was- soft maple's hard. That's what they say. It was a Freud carbide bit shown here. And he gave me a link to just as a standard uh, upcut spiral bit from Freud. I was careful to take shallow passes and move slowly. The bit wasn't all that old and cut quality was still quite good. So I don't know why, or I don't think it was getting dull yet. I'm willing to lay down the cash for a better bit, but not if it's likely to break. Do you have any suggestions other than be more careful next time? Well, here's the thing. Maple's hard and a quarter inch bit is very small. So it doesn't really take that much to build up heat. And as you're going slow, even if you're only taking small bites, that bit is spinning at a high rate of speed and going slowly through the wood. And it really can heat up quickly. And uh, the problem is a lot of times you don't realize what that's doing to the metal. And that's where some of that breakage can come from. So it, it may just be, uh, I mean, anytime I'm working in one of these really hard exotics, for instance, that's something that's always on my mind. And I will burn through bits much faster in that stuff. And hard maple, yeah, it's pretty hard stuff, you know, for a domestic. Yep. Um, so you, you are potentially going to have that issue with a bit that's that thin. It heats up, it's thin material and snap. So I don't know that it's necessarily that that particular bit is bad buying a different brand. Sure, you may get a better quality bit, but you could very well have the same thing happen again. So I think going in shallow passes is good too, but there is an issue and just this is something that will get more comfortable. And I don't know how long you've been woodworking, but um, the longer you do this stuff, you start to feel the flow for how fast you should be moving that tool. And sometimes going slow is not necessarily better. Um, but you don't want to go too fast. You just know what's ju- what's like the perfect speed for this tool. And that's something that over time experience will kind of let yeah, you know what it is. I think it's feedback. I mean, you can tell when mm-hmm. the tool starts to bog down, you're yes. pushing right. too hard. I'd be willing to bet that he broke that bit near the bottom of the mortise too. Yeah, yeah. Once you know, the whole thing light is in. Passes, light passes are one thing, but overreaching. And you are, again, like you said, you're talking about a brittle, very hard and brittle piece of carbide that's only a quarter inch in diameter that... You know, if you're cutting a two inch deep mortise, you've got, you know, it extended way out the bottom there. Yeah. Um, speaking from personal experience, that's when I've broken those bits. Right. Yeah. And every time the uh, bottom. and every time you stay still at the end of the cut and the beginning of the cut, if you're plunging down and then you start to move, that is a point of major heat buildup. It's one of the cool things about, uh, for instance, the Festool Domino. When that first came out, I'm looking at the bit going, wow, I wonder, I mean, I know how long a mortising bit lasts for me with my router. I wonder how this impacts something like the Domino. The key with the domino is that it's it's not only spinning, but it's moving back and forth constantly. It never stops, and that actually helps the cooling. And that points out what our problem is with routers is that you plunge, 
And then that like half a second or full second that it's sitting in that position, it builds up a tremendous amount of heat and does the same on the way out. Um, so you got a lot of things working against you in that situation. But um, yeah, so there's let me that. ask you guys this. Just I was just thinking off the top of my head here. What what if you if you, if you were anticipating something like this, working with a similar hardwood or something, had a bad experience? What about the idea of putting in say a uh, some sort of relief cut in the sense of like a drill bit so that when you reach the other end. Do you think it would dissipate any of the heat once it reaches that other end? Would it eliminate some of what you have to cut or just doesn't really make a difference? I think it can make a difference. Um, what I usually do is not drill, but I use the bit. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll plunge at the beginning of the cut, plunge at the end of the cut, and that establishes my start and stop points, but then also okay. gives me a safety zone. Once I cut through, I'm in that safe zone and it's free, you know, freewheeling at that point. Right. right. I mean, it, it's the same thing with the, with the doing it by hand. Mm-hmm. It's it's really, really hard until you've got a relief cut. And then, yeah. you know, hard maple or not, the wood has a place to go when right. you're wedging against it. So, yeah, I think that'd be great. And, and again, going into the whole thing about the, the shallow passes, uh, I, I know for myself there are certain species that I will take a much shallower pass. In fact, it's like one of those, I have to go, I have to go how deep? Oh, my God, this going to take me forever to get there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, unfortunately, sometimes that is the case. Um, you, know, you know, I also would mention maybe try a bigger bit. If your mortise is larger than a quarter inch, you know, maybe bump up to something that's a little bit more substantial. I, I live off of this half-inch spiral bit that I've got. It's absolutely amazing. I use it on just about any project that I possibly can, but not every not every mortise is going to be as you know wide as a, a half-inch bit would call for. So, um, But think about that. Maybe put the, the wood in the freezer so that it's cooler Ooh. and it won't, it won't heat up as fast. Now, that's good thinking there, man. Yeah, there we go. All right. <laughs> okay, hey, let's move on to this next one. And this one comes from Fred. And Fred wants to know, what are three books we can't live without? And I'm assuming he's talking about woodworking books here. Not Fifty uh, Shades of Grey, you guys. Or, or Winnie the Pooh. I mean, I'm that way I've got my, my uh, issue and it's completely worn out by now. <laughs> you know, it's funny because for me, the books have changed over the years. But I think three of them that even though I haven't broken into them in, in a, quite a long time, they are still on my bookshelf and they're not going anywhere. And mm-hmm. I always recommend these to people. Uh, the first one in no particular order because I know I didn't buy them in this order, uh, is uh, Classy Joints with Power Tools. And this is uh, uh, Young Chan uh, wrote this. I I love this book because it goes over, again, the classic joinery techniques we're going to use, but it doesn't say that you can only use this particular tool. It actually is broken down by the joinery itself, and then shows you how to do it, say, with a table saw or a drill press or do it with a router. It gives you options in there so that depending on the size of your shop and what you have or what you feel comfortable with, most of the time, just about every joinery technique that's in here, there's two two or three different ways that you can accomplish it. Mm-hmm. And that to me, that, that was like one of those, especially as a beginning woodworker, it's like, oh, that's really cool because I thought I would have to have tool X in order to do joinery you know why right and so it was really neat to see these different ways to do it i will say though i have to put a a warning in there that there are variations of the various joinery where suddenly you're like oh my gosh i have to try this one and maybe it's just a little bit above you or above me at least so (laughs) um something to think about Uh, another one that i absolutely love and this was when i was really starting to push towards hand tools i think this is a good book even for people who are all power tool because this will help to give you an idea of things that you can incorporate to uh, make that experience with your power tools better is uh choosing and using hand tools hey, by andy ray andy ray uh, that's a good one 
Yeah, I mean, my mine is annotated up the yin yang. It's like getting a textbook, and you're like, oh my gosh, this guy highlighted everything in here. <laughs> I have done that. In fact, I think pages are missing. To be quite honest with you, um, let's see here. The next one I have is. I will always recommend a really good sharpening book, and my current favorite one is from Ron Hawk, and it's Hawk's The Perfect Edge, The Ultimate Guide to Sharpening for Woodworkers. Nice. Um, I, really, I really like every, the way he has it laid out, his explanations, but another good fallback one that prior to Ron's coming out is The Complete Guide to Sharpening by Leonard Lee. Um, again, it really kind of opened my eyes to taking the hand tools and actually getting results from them, especially tools that are more than just simply a chisel and a hand plane. There's a lot of stuff in both of the books that I think any, especially beginning woodworker can look at it and go, you know what? That's not as complicated as I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Very nice. How about you, Shannon? This one is a little tough because I kind of like what you said, Matt, I, the, the books have changed over the years and I found myself moving less much further away from the kind of technical side and the how-to side to, you know, like museum-style books, you know, more inspiration-type stuff. So I was trying to think of, you know, the books that I've looked at recently, and they all have fallen into that category. I don't know if that's what he's really looking for. Well, Um, maybe. It's hard to say. um, There's one that I'm actually surprised you didn't mention, Matt, that I do find myself reaching for. It's Taunton's, you know, the complete guide, that whole set they have um taunton's oh, yes. uh, guide to joinery i think is what it's called yep yeah. one of the big hardcover ones and it basically has just about every joint you can imagine and several different ways to cut it that's uh, you know? gary rogowski by the way yes yeah that's a really good one i do find myself pulling that out from time to time um roy underhill his latest with uh, wedge and edge i think it's easily his finest there there are a lot of kind of duplications going on between Roy's books because basically it started out as just a companion to the show. So it was whatever he did in that particular season. But Wedge and Edge, I think, was done after the 25th or like 28th year of the show. So it was like calling on all of his experiences. And it's just incredibly comprehensive for hand tool techniques. But it's also a little bit more of a conversational type read. Mm, Um, And then, you know, going... In that same direction towards more of the museum book, uh, American Period Furniture by Jeffrey Green is just outstanding. I've mentioned that on the show before. Uh, unfortunately, it's out of print and it's hard to find for less than about $70. But it's, it is a really in-depth look at um, what people would call the golden age of furniture. Whether you're into period furniture or not, it talks a lot about the maturation of the style from the Jacobean in the 17th century into the Chippendale Federal and Empire. And you can literally trace just about any of the contemporary styles we have now back to some inspiration that's in here. And instead of it just being a museum book, it's written by a woodworker. Jeffrey Green, by the way, is an amazing cabinet maker. And um, he actually breaks down the pieces. So anybody who really... I remember when I was somewhat new to this, it was like, hey, that's a nice piece, but I want to see the guts. You know, how was that chest put together? He does that. Um, He he shows you in exploded drawings how they were put together and what region used a sliding dovetail versus just a dado. And it's it's an outstanding book. It literally is worth every penny. I think I paid 100 bucks for mine, unfortunately, but it is autographed. (laughs) Um, It's just, it's awesome. I reach for it probably at least once a week. It's just really nice to have. 
Cool. You know, I think next week we might want to talk more about uh, books that we go to for inspiration because I took this as more of technical stuff, mm-hmm. uh, technical resource books, as opposed to the things that I just get inspiration from. And it's two very different sets of books. Well, um, I do think there's a key point there and not like, I mean, none of us are, you know, 30, 40 year veterans, but I do think you get to a point where like, I, I don't need to see how to cut a joint anymore. You know, right, right. Um, so you, you reach for that, I think, relatively quickly in your woodworking career where you start walking away from the how to books and more into the artsy fartsy ones. Yeah, I need ideas and how to apply the things I know now as opposed to learning more things. Oh, right. it's called uh, Pottery Barn uh, Catalog. We get those periodically. <laughs> and Sam will dog ear them and say, uh, you need to be inspired to build this. Build this, man. <laughs> All right. Uh, I've got a couple quick ones here. Um, you actually picked one of the same ones I picked, Shannon, um, the Illustrated Guide to Joinery with Rogalski. It's one of those two, like even though, like you said, you kind of know most of this stuff, you'd be surprised how much you forget when you open right. them up and read a chapter on something as simple as the mortise and tendon joint and you go, Oh man, just some of the fundamentals, uh, like anything that you learn, uh, this type of stuff tends to, some of the details tend to slip away over time. There's um, some cool variations in there too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's something I like to have on the shelf because if I'm doing something I haven't done in a while, it's great to pull that down and just kind of recenter myself and then, uh, attack the project. Um, another thing I would recommend, and this is, this is big because finishing is very important. And a lot of people focus so much on construction of a project and and think about finishing as a, a, just it's an afterthought and it really shouldn't be. So uh, most of your finishing questions can be answered by either Jeff Jewett or Bob Flexner in one of their Bible books, you know, just this is what finishing is. Here's all the different types of finishes and how you apply them. Either one of those, I think they're both great. Um, You just can't go wrong with those, but you do need a book on finishing because it is a huge topic in and of itself. And and that's a good resource to have on the shelf. Um, The other one is I really like Chris Schwartz's uh, first blue workbenches book. Oh, totally. I mean, it was just a real common sense approach to workbench building that I I guess it it might be of limited use to some people, but if you are on that workbench building journey, it's a must read. You've got to have it. And it's good common sense information that that you'll use going forward in other projects. Um, And I guess the last one I should recommend, now this one's not out yet, but I do think it's a must have. And and that's uh, this book called Hybrid Woodworking coming out in November. (laughs) Oh, I've I've already seen a, a previous one for that, and I heard that it's it's pure crap. But that's on a different show that said that. <laughs> oh, 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 okay, all right. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Actually, I I'm looking forward to that definitely. Yeah, to put your grape soda on it. <laughs> you know, I I'm actually draw, I'm, draw I'm my... and stuff. <laughs> that that comes with it, doesn't it? Yeah, little, Mar- like, I give you a sharpie with every. You move around. It's a, there's a sharpie with every book. I said, nice. Sam, look, we're gonna get a new dartboard. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious i'm i'm, I'm kind of kicking myself i can't believe i didn't bring this up but since mark and i had the same book there's another journey book you should look at and it's a more of a vintage one it's charles haywards woodwork joints hmm. um I'm, i can't believe i didn't say that i reach for that all the time when I it comes to like variations on joints and things and it's made in the i want to say it was written in the 60s maybe 50s so it's not like so old that Everything, of course, is just hand tools. He yeah. actually talks about different ways to do it. But it is in that period of time where we didn't have all the bells and whistles tools that we have now. Mm-hmm. So when he does bring up a tool solution, it's usually a very kind of fundamental tool. Cool. 
uh, which I think is really cool. So Woodwork Joints by Charles Hayward, really good. good. And uh, I'll tell you what, next week, let's do that, guys. I'll put that in the notes here. We'll just talk, uh, we'll pick like a book or two that we go to for inspiration. We'll talk about that next time. Cool. Okay, Shannon, your next uh, last email here. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. This is from Andreas and he would like to start building a joinery handsaw set. Actually, I'd really like to buy just one stinking saw. Uh, good luck. <laughs> that I could cut joinery with, but that doesn't seem possible. So if I want to work on my joinery skills, dovetails, small casework and boxes, using a bench hook for small pieces, cutting tenons, etc., do I need two saws because of grain direction? Or can I get away with just one, at least to start? If so, which one? And I responded to Andreas by saying um, we kind of talked about this a little bit. I don't know if it was the last show or two shows ago. I brought up uh, an article that uh, Mark Harrell had written at Bad Axe Toolworks on uh, sawtooth geometry mm. and explaining his hybrid filing. Um, I, I own one of those hybrid filed saws, and that is your, call it your jack saw, if you will. You can rip and cross cut with it. Now, I'm going to also go so far as to say I think this whole, there's a lot of debate whether or not this rip and cross cut filing is more of a modern thing, and that some of the, there will be a lot of purists who say no one ever ground fleam on their teeth. They just use the same bloom and saw for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of me has to believe that because, you know, these saws were not, you know, ridiculously cheap. And these journeymen who literally journeyed to the job site, um, they weren't carrying around 20 different saws with them. You know, they had a back saw and probably a hand saw and that was it. So um, I think you don't necessarily have to go and buy a bad axe hybrid cut saw, especially because in Mark's article, he basically tells you exactly what that is. And it's just, a, it's a compromise between a cross cut saw and a rip saw, little less, little less fleam, a little bit more rake than a rip saw. And that that's, that's it. And it works great. There's no mm-hmm. reason why you can't get by with just that one back saw. Well, and I don't know if he's hung up on, you know, strictly being in the Western world, but what about a Ryoba? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's um, you got both. He, rip and cross uh, there was a part of this that I that I just edited out for um, to be more concise, but he does mention that he has a couple of those. Um, it sounds like just the the cheaper, mm-hmm. like twenty dollar versions of those Japanese saws, and then a couple of uh, old distons and things that he has. So he does have some saws already. Yeah. Um, I think he is a little set. He's probably. Uh, entranced by the bling that exists on the saw market these days. Bling, yeah. bling. Yeah, it, well, it is easy to get really lost in those. And I was just thinking with the same response that, I mean, I had a very similar like Irwin pole saw or something like that from, from the home center. And I used that for years for my, my dovetail saw. And I, I re- get really good results with it. And I think the only reason I actually went to a dovetail saw a uh, uh, Western style dovetail saw was because I was taking a class and I didn't want to be poked fun at <laughs> for bringing in, you know, a home center saw, which was funny because then everybody else around me had the home center saws. <laughs> right. Cool. All right. Well, let's get into our iTunes reviews as we close out the show. If you want to leave us a review in iTunes, just look us up in the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews and let Matt know how much you enjoy seeing him in glorious HD. 
Mm, big mm-hmm. and fun. That's right. Uh, we'd <laughs> like to thank P. Goodman, 1981, who had this to say. He says it's like a charging station. I love the podcast. I'm in a new woodworker and have yet to pull the trigger on my first project. With the tips, tricks, and techniques that are given by Mark, Matt, and Shannon, it constantly keeps my battery charged. It makes me want to work in the shop. Thank you guys for all your insight and great commentary. Keep up the great work. Look forward to each podcast. And thank you, P. Goodman, 1981. Now go build that first project. Do it, man. Do it. Just rip the band aid off. All right, and uh, just remember, today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com, as well as ArborTech at blog.arbortechusa.com. And you can also uh, give us a little, you know, a little bit of the green stuff, because we need it. We got we to gotta buy hot dogs and grape soda. Yeah, because I am not eating the other green stuff, you know, that they call it lettuce. It's, yeah. It starts with an S. Sal- sal- Salad? Sal- sal- salami? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, if you want to set up a recurring donation, you can do that at woodtalkshow.com. Just look in the left-hand column over there and you'll see a couple of links. Or you can give us a one-time donation, which we also appreciate. And that just helps us keep the lights on here. keeps things running, server costs, all that good stuff. Keeps Matt and Shannon coming here every week talking with me, which is always nice. Um, Absolutely. And we have to thank uh, William D. <laughs> yes, it's definitely my pleasure. Um, William D. and David T., thank you guys so much for your generous donations. We really appreciate it. And Matt, how about you tell them how they can get in touch with us, and we will get out of here. Hey, folks, if you have some comments, questions, or topics, suggestions, maybe you want to you know, tell us something about a no-nonsense something like that board foot calculator at the top or just tell us to quit making nonsense. <laughs> uh, you have several different ways to contact us. Leave a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. Or you can leave us a comment over on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And don't forget, if you're ever looking for the show notes or downloads, say perhaps from today's show or one of the previous episodes, including I think it was number 47, where you can hear about the first time we mentioned that really great worldwide kind of thingy. I already forgot what it is, uh, but it was back there someplace. You're going to find all that stuff over at woodtalkshow.com. And we really look forward to hearing from all of you one way or the other. Very nice. All right. Well, everybody, have a great woodworking week. And don't forget, always playing away from the boys. Ooh. <laughs> yes. And there's the show title. There right? you go. <laughs> All right. Have a good one, everybody. We'll catch you next time. See, See ya. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.